Well, crew, well, crew, we are ready for the next charter. Please assemble on the dock in your whites. Copy that. Adam, Adam, Joe, may I please see you in the booth for a quick chat? Copy that, Captain Joe, on my way. Hello, everyone. Adam, you look a bit bit troubled. Is everything okay? I'm just thinking about that situation there in the bit before the music. Why were we talking like we were a yacht crew? Well, I was paying a loving homage to the E4 show that's been keeping me going pretty much all through summer, which is the show that is called Below Deck Mediterranean. What is Below Deck Mediterranean? Below Deck Mediterranean is a documentary about the crew of luxury yachts um, in the Mediterranean, and they're mainly below the deck, hence the name, and they take out um, charters throughout the summer season of extremely rich and often famous people to to sail around the Mediterranean, eat luxury food, have the time of their lives, and as they do that, obviously, they fall in love with each other, they fall out with each other, they have stupid arguments with one another, chefs get fired, third stews don't answer their radios. It's all incredible, and I've I've been loving it. Is that satire? It could be satire, actually, even though it, no, it's not satire, because you could argue, um, you could argue that it basically transplants... Um, workplace dynamics and tensions of and hierarchies into a different unfamiliar space so like the world of the luxury yacht so you see these familiar things playing out but in a unfamiliar space it's the same but it's not the same and that's just like Stuart Lee said isn't it satire is when it's like the real world but it's on a luxury yacht that's how you know that it's satire and it also dramatises a glaring schism between the rich and the poor by placing them all on a yacht together. It's kind of like H.G. Wells' is The Time Machine with the Morlocks and the Eloy, um, except that the crew never actually eat the, the primary, although sometimes I think arguably they perhaps should. Um, so the underclass have to serve the wealthy literally anything they want, any time of the day or night. So it could be satire, yeah. Is it satire? It's not satire, no. But if you watch it intelligently, like like what I do, it might make you think many interesting things. But is it satire? No, it's probably the opposite of satire. And do you know what the opposite of satire is? Is it an empty wooden unit in a deserted foyer turned to face the wall? Uh, No, it's not that, actually, although that would be a strong argument for that. The opposite of satire is legit legit is the opposite of satire as i will go on to demonstrate shortly and all will become clear but for now welcome back to the booth welcome back to the booth joe yes we're finally back in our actual booth to record where we can interrupt Interrupt each each other other. (laughs) interrupt each other nobody's wi-fi will die and both of our volume levels will be the same it's after times (laughs) it's the after times at last for now we're after the then times and before the ensuing times, but we're not quite back in the before times yet. And do you know what, Joe? What? I had to go to the porter's lodge to collect the key. Mm-hmm. And they were so excited that someone had asked for this key. And they were like, no one's asked for this key in ages. There Isn't used this- to be a recording booth, <laughs> but yeah. it hasn't been seen in 40 years. But honestly, they were all so excited to give the key out because it's just another sign that things are yeah. uh, back in the normal a bit a bit we're not out of the pandemic no. but but we're pretending we are no it would like... be it would be stupid <laughs> to suggest that everything will be exactly like it was pre covid but uh, we are we're in the booth commentating on satire um, which leads me to want to say oh and that's a bad miss <laughs> satire satire in the booth there amazing 
But Joe, we're not the pin, we're not the crew of the Wellington Yacht, and we're not Mitchell and Webb snooker commentators. Who are we? I'm Hannah. I'll be showing you around the yacht while the deck crew get ready for us to depart. Stop it. Alright, um, copy that. Well, my name is Joe. On the radio, you will address me as Dr. Joe and respect my authority at all times. That was a bit below deck again. That's <laughs> ca- Captain Sandy. That's the sort of thing Captain Sandy says. Um, so, I am Dr. Joe War, senior lecturer in English literature of the 19th century variety, and you are the chief stew. <laughs> I am Dr. Adam James Smith, senior lecturer in 18th century flavoured literature, and together we are the pin. <laughs> no, we're not. We're Smith and War talk about satire, its form, function, future, and history in a desperate bid to amass quantifiable impact for ourselves. But the chief stew, surely that would be Stuart Lee. <laughs> Stuart Lee, yeah, I, I can't imagine a more bizarre chief stew than Stuart Lee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah. Um, yeah, because I don't think he's built for it, is he? No, that's a nice um, No, no. But so, there's some interesting book-related news, isn't there, about us talking about the form, function, future, and history of satire. There is. Yeah. So we've, we, well, we've got a little book coming out little, soon, little book? haven't we? Yeah. So we've been collaborating with an independent press called Green Teeth Press mm. um, to produce a special book, which is called Contagious Laughter, talking about satire in the age of COVID-19. Yeah. This has been written by Me. Joe War and you. myself, Adam yeah. Smith. Um, and what it does is it collates transcripts from four carefully chosen episodes that really plot the narrative of the pandemic from a mm. podcast perspective. But it's book ended with an essay about the relationship between contagion and satire and a sort of reflective preface where we think about our journey, our trajectory, yeah, don't we? Um, so that's coming soon and we're going to be able to give about 75 copies of this book away for free. Oh, who should we give them to? Well, anyone who corroborates quantifiable impact for this podcast right, can okay. have one. So, who, who might that be? <laughs> well, we're going to p- publish a questionnaire and if you complete the questionnaire, we'll send you a copy of the book. Oh, yeah. Um, but, I mean, we could give them to other people as well. Who do you think we should give one to? Um, <laughs> well, 75 between us or 75 each We've got away? 75 in total to give away. Right, okay. And then once those 75 are given away, if you would like a copy, you'd have to purchase it from Green Teeth yeah. Press. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give one to my relative that listens to the podcast. The uh-huh. rest of them don't, so they can't So that's one. the list, listenership sort of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, it, that she, she can have one. Well, oh, he! Yeah, I think is I'm, she? I'm going to give one to everyone who's ever doubted the credibility of this project. Oh, they'll love that, so that they? that'll be another 74 yeah. gone. I'm going to put them all in the satire unit in the foyer. <laughs> yeah. that'll, that'll just be the exhibition for forever. Um, who else will we get? Well, maybe some guests who mm-hmm. have really helped us mm-hmm. kind of making the podcast good. Yeah, maybe yeah. Some of them could a have wonderful one. guests can have one. That's a nice um, way of giving back. Uh, <laughs> I don't, don't know, really. Perhaps we'll just sort of leave them out you know there always used to be a box near the offices with like a fray bentos pie and some tins of stuff yeah, yeah we could yeah. put some in there yeah so the book is is really good news isn't that it is we're a good, really excited a, about that that's a little big bit of news but that's not what this episode is about this episode is mostly going to be about the fact that it's tw- the 20th anniversary of the brass eye special peter geddon peter geddon yeah, yeah which was broadcast obviously in if your surname was geddon would you call your son peter <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's what we're going to talk about later, but we've got some other business first. I mean, first of all, you promised that you were going to tell me what legit. Uh, you were going to tell me why legit is the opposite of satire. Why is it? Okay, well, we're just going to do a little bit of kind of um, homework on this first bit of prep. So just for the avoidance of doubt, legit 
is the short form of the word legitimate or legitimately. And it's a word that's often used by young people. Um, Adam, can you give an example of how legit might occur in a sentence? And I want to be clear about this because I don't want another weird flex situation where it, I tell you a phrase and then you use it in odd ways. When have I ever used weird devil- flex wrongly? Oh, I know this is a bit of a weird flex, but I've got some crisps. That's yeah, that's how you use it. How um, should you use it then? If not, every well, time like, you use a word. Like if you were... <laughs> Well, it would be more like if you came in and you were like, I've got three different flavours of crisps here. And then I could say, well, weird flex, but okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, even that's not a great example. But you you more, I think, say I, if somebody I, else is doing a weird flex. You don't say like, oh, this is this is a weird flex, but I wrote 163 lectures last year or something. So, yeah, we, we don't want a, a weird flex situation. So how, how might you use that in a sentence? Uh, I legit 100% low-key murdered my husband. Lovely. Yes, well done. Um, can you try another one? Me. Legit planning to get up early. Also me. Legit didn't get up early. Excellent. You are legit, legit AF. So, last no, time... No, I'm legit AJS. Oh, that's very clever, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Weird flex. <laughs> <laughs> last time we talked... Um, we concluded the episode where we talked to Lee Stein with some chat, and I mean that literally, not like we legit chatted shit, right? Like that, like a young person would say. Um, I'm, I'm not under any illusions. I'm, I'm not young. We, we legitimately chatted, um, not legit, you know, legit chat shit or whatever, um, about Bo Burnham's song "White Woman's Instagram." And since that time, I think we've both watched the full thing that that comes from, haven't we? The mm-hmm. Netflix. Um, yep feature length inside and I've been digging around for some people's responses to it because I wanted to um, figure out what the general reaction to it was and maybe specifically as well what the general reaction to white women's Instagram was and whether it's landing as satire or not to see if we were right or how wrong we were and here is a post on Reddit about the song Problematic in which Burnham seems to be berating himself for problematic things he's done, not all of which are necessarily obviously problematic. So people are trying to figure out, like, well, does he does he mean it? Is he actually apologising? Um, and if so, why are some of the things silly? So this poster wrote, Problematic was one of my least favourite songs because I hate taking comedy out of context, but the more I hear slash see it, the more I think it's a satire. Being upset that someone wore an Aladdin costume when they were a kid, digging up people's past for dirt, cancel culture, I think he's blowing everything out of proportion and uses the Christ metaphor to show how ridiculous cancel culture is and how excessive it is to get upset over old shit comedians have done. And here comes the, the legit bit. But everyone else, this poster says, seems to think he's legit commentating about his past and he's legit apologising. Did you want to say something? Well, I think this person is wrong. Okay. Well, they're, 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 they're trying to work through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it satire or is it legit? And one reply was, it's both legit apology and satire mm-hmm. because Bo is the master of making things multi-layered. How convenient. I know. And then another person said it was saying that this, this is Bo Burnham is apparently saying this stop making legit socio-political issues about your self-martyrdom mm-hmm, I think that's uh, yeah, yeah yeah and another one said when he calls himself out for not being able to hide behind his childhood that's legit so the word legit here is increasingly emerging mm-hmm. as a, a useful 
way to say not satire. So I had a little side thought about this. You know how sometimes we say it'd be really cool if we did like an offshoot of the podcast where we talk about other stuff, like mm-hmm. Smith and Ward talk about the Brontes or mm-hmm. Smith and Ward talk about a film they've seen or whatever. <laughs> it could be Smith and Ward talk about legit things. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Legit chat with Smith and Ward. Le- legit chat. If with we Smith ever get round to doing like a spin-off where mm-hmm. we talk about other things, it'll be legit. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like, this you, is illegit. It could just be called Legit with Smith and War. Legit, yeah. Couldn't it? Yeah. That sounds like a brand. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, interesting responses. Um, so I think that the song Problematic from my memory, it, my sense was that he, it, it was, I thought that was one of the more interesting songs. And mm-hmm. my impression was that he was suggesting that actually some people sort of almost fetishise the idea that they might have done something problematic mm. so that they can create this do figure of themselves as the, and redeem themselves. Yeah. And I've seen people do this, but people I know mm. do this on Instagram where it's like, I just said this thing in a conversation a few days ago and it occurs to me that it might be problematic and then they'll write a long thing about how they really they ha- they need to educate themselves. They've now educated themselves. Please can everyone forgive them? And then everyone comments and like, absolutely, hun, completely forgive you. Don't you're too mm. hard on yourself. You're a great person. So it's this kind of like performative self-flagellation. But then I, I mean, I thought it was quite sophisticated. Cause I didn't feel like the Bo Burnham persona in that song even did feel that what mm. they did was problematic. It's just. Well, I mean, the Aladdin costume when he was yeah. eight or whatever, and you know, because he in that song he's like narrating. He's 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 going through his thought process in yeah. real time, isn't he? Saying, is this bad yeah. or is it not bad? I'm still sorry anyway. But he's really having to dredge up the most trivial... Yeah. The, he's really trying hard to dredge something up and it's still quite banal. Uh, well, banal, but also benign. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's pretty clear that he is, to an extent, satirising that sort of apology culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but that he perhaps also feels he's got some things to apologise for. Um, and we might get on to talk about those in a little while. We won't spend too long on Bo Burnham, but there's a couple of things I wanted to observe. So this was, like, really well-received. And it also ties in with... You know, when we were talking to Lee in the last episode about, you know, how do you narrate COVID? Mm-hmm. Um, and that perhaps poetry is better at doing that at where we're at right now than narrative, because we don't know the end yet. And I think there was a sense, like, particularly there was a Guardian review that said, you know, this this format of lots of different um lots of different songs put together and there's no obvious narrative to it and nothing linear about it 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 feels like a good way to make art out of out of covid um yeah there's so a really positive review about that um in the guardian so yeah what else did we want to say about bo burnham's inside i mean having watched it as a whole was there did you have any were there any moments that stood out to you? Did you have any favourite moments or moments that you particularly didn't like? Did you have any strong reactions to any of it when you viewed it in, in its complete form? I felt like what the thing that most stands out about the whole thing is just how slick and stylish it is, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like he's really good at pastiching and parodying different different kinds of music, but also like there's the video game bit, isn't there? Um it's and it's all like really aesthetically it's almost as nice to look at as a white woman's Instagram mm-hmm. I thought yeah um, like you know he'll, he'll sing that he feels like shit but it, it all looks quite nice but I don't say that to be disparaging it's like it's visually good isn't it yeah and I thought one particularly obvious piece of satire that I felt landed well was the the one about um, 
performative BLM allyship among multinational companies. Yeah. Was the line like, you don't really have to do anything, just it's not about the product, it's not about what you make, just agree that JP Morgan is against racism in theory. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I thought thought that was really, really well done. What about you? Um, Well, I mean, so one of the things that struck me is that, you know, when you view it as a complete thing, and I sound really slow here, like slow on the uptake, but it's basically about the internet, isn't it? Yeah. And that's what a lot of the reviews said before you started. It's not like you sort of have to watch it. If you didn't know that before you went in, mm. you slow, it slowly occurs to you that all of these songs are in some way about the internet. Yeah. Um, yeah, which makes it hold together, I think, in, in a particular way. My favourite sketches were the ones where he was basically doing parodies of different mm. types of internet uh, thing. So there's the bit where he is parodying reaction videos. I thought yeah. it was very funny because yeah. he records his reaction to a previous video he did and then he records his reaction to the reaction and you end up in this infinite loop there's another one where he's in the corner of the screen narrating himself playing a video game which is also him in a sims like and i thought that was really interesting because he the the point being made there was like you know your life is kind of as pointless and stupid as if as a character in a video game you can get up you can walk to the left a Mm. bit you can walk to the right you can look at your piano you can stop looking at your piano um, and that works as satire. But ironically for me, that that sort of like being locked in a room in a pandemic is how characters tend to act when I'm in charge of them on a video game. Like they'll <laughs> sort of, I can make them walk two paces and then they like look perplexedly at the wall that they keep trying to walk into and yeah. kind of stand around in a in a wooden fashion, not being able to pick up the thing they're supposed to pick up. But yeah. I think I'm just not, that's not my special skill. But, yeah. So yeah, it, I got an extra level out of that just by <laughs> dint of not being very good at video games. I was talking to our friend Ben, who is a friend of the podcast mm-hmm. uh, and often does jingles for the. He's a, Sorry, he's a, he's ben, a ben of the podcast. He's a Ben of the podcast, a, a Ben friend of the podcast, mm. and he was saying that it's um it's observational comedy, but mm. the subject is the internet. Yeah. And basically, it made me reflect that maybe I'm asking too much of this because uh, because one of the things that struck me is that a lot of the songs are very funny lists. He lists mm. things, doesn't he? And often comedy arises from the uncomfortable juxtaposition or you know, sudden bathos of things yeah. being placed next to each other. But then a consequence of that is it's really difficult to get a sense of what it is that Bo Burnham thinks or is arguing. It's just quite ambivalent. Mm. It'd be like, well, here's, here's an inter- someone's going to say interracial slurs, someone's going to want to cancel someone, someone's going to want to do this, that, the other. You get it all in a long list and you, you can't pinpoint what he thinks. And part of me was like, well, that is that quite cynical because then everyone can laugh at it, but no one feels alienated by it. But conversely, like, is it? His, it's not necessarily his job to make a political point, is it? Mm. It's, it's just observational comedy that happens to be on the internet. I think because so much of the internet is cultural bullshit, I then expected it to have a mm. position on that, which I didn't feel like it did have. So what do you think about that stuff, if we come back to it then, that we were talking about last time? What do I think about it? Right, I think that... I, th- I think there's a number of things going on here that I, I want to try and um, address, right? So I still hold that observational comedy or no is one of the less sophisticated, if not less well-observed. I, I do think it's it's well-observed. I think it's less impressive even uh, than other parts of Inside, although it is one of the bits that's been picked up most frequently this is um, by Instagram. reviewers. Yeah, White yeah. Women's Instagram. Yeah. It's been hailed as being especially funny, and I guess that's because, like, like we said last time, we can all recognise posts like this. We've all seen them, mm-hmm. right? But what frustrates me is that Bo Burnham, in who I mentioned that he wrote and directed the film Eighth Grade in the last episode, right? 
And one of the kind of running threads in that film is that this slightly misfit kid, Kayla, who's 13 and is the the centre of the film, one of the most kind of tragic aspects of it is that she makes these YouTube videos, right? She And she she would kind of sit there in front of a, a blank screen and record like useful peppy advice for other 13 year olds like this is this is how to go to a party how to be yourself how to um manage the transition from junior high to high school and it's so well observed like he knows exactly how those youtube videos work and what the ticks of them are but he also shows us rather than telling us that there's there's something quite pathetic about the fact that behind it there's someone who isn't really in a position to give advice who isn't particularly happy who's trying desperately to to find a positive way through it all and by framing herself as someone who's capable of giving advice to other struggling 13 year olds that's potentially helpful for her up to a point but you you always see when she's doing it like that nobody's watched it nobody's commented it nobody's liked it or, or subscribed to it and it's like it's heartbreaking and he observes that so well and manages to show us without shoving it in our face that behind every peppy little youtube video there is somebody behind it who's maybe not okay and it's like it it's moving and authentic and impressive that I just think he's better than saying like have you ever noticed women like they're always posting pumpkins they're always posting lattes they misquote things they they include a random quote from Lord of the Rings incorrectly attributed to Martin Luther King and so on and the fact that everybody is kind of trying to figure out whether this this is like a singular white woman or all white women um, and what the relationship of the list of stuff, the dumb shit they do on Instagram and then the fact there might be real tragedy in their lives and whether it's heartfelt and sad or whatever. He, like, the fact that it's difficult to work out isn't necessarily a bad thing. But if it is the case that there's meant to be pathos here and that what we're meant to learn is, like, yes, there's all this stupid stuff on Instagram, but there's a real person behind it and perhaps this is the only way that in this age of internet and social media people can articulate feelings that are, are actually real and genuine. He just does that so much better in eighth grade mm-hmm. and in a way that doesn't, rankle and whether whether it's fair for that to to rankle or not stop saying rankle i don't know i do feel as well that it if you said if an observational comedian walked onto stage and said have you ever noticed right have you ever noticed women's instagram what the fuck is all that about women's what are they like women on instagram always posting their always posting their pumpkin lattes women what are you like and then did as Bo Burnham does like sort of little pouts and moues to camera looks like deliberately dumb that if you did that you'd sound like a misogynist Mm. but if you say white women's Instagram you sound like a social justice warrior um what about if when you view white women's Instagram as a as a as a sketch inside the the whole thing it's preceded not it's preceded about 50 minutes earlier by a sketch called white men isn't it? It's got white. There's a white man. So there's a song about what being a white man. There's a song about him being a white man. It's like I'm a man, white man. It? I need yeah. to get out of the fucking way and all this yeah. stuff. Like, do, do you think that he's just gone? I'm doing white. Do you think that that sketch is there to justify the white woman one later, so that you can be like, ah, but I did it to white men as well? Or is there something more? 
I don't think it's that calculated, is it? No. I, I don't think he's like, oh, well, I really, really, really want to have a go at white women's Instagram. How am I going to lay the ground for this so that it will all be fine? Mm. Um, but I think when he's talking, when he's talking about the white men um, need to be quiet and sit the fuck down or whatever, mm. um, that feels more complex and more knowing and more like it's interested in discourse mm-hmm. whereas white women's instagram feels more like it's interested in saying like have you ever noticed women's instagram is really like shit and pathetic and mm. phony there's more complicated points being made when he's talking about the whole thing about how he as a white man is wrestling with the idea that he should be sitting down and being quiet and mm how to do and then he he, he satirizes the the fact that he wants to do that but in a way that he's still the center of attention That's and he, he he says that doesn't he yeah or, or the persona says that something that did make me laugh that he mm. says doesn't he uh is it okay for me to make a joke and yeah you know your message is why don't you try making one yeah. <laughs> you get quite far into it before there's a joke isn't there yeah I mean, I think that's very interesting. It, so coming back to the White Women's Instagram bit, I mean, one of the points of contention at the end of the last episode, not between us, but seemingly in the in the comments of the video, was mm. whether or not when he does the whole thing where he's like, Mama, I miss you. Mm. I just want you to know I've got a massive apartment and a great job and I'm satisfied in life. Yeah. Whether or not that was this moment of sincerity it, from the character that shows that there's someone behind the screen or whether that was part of the satire, e.g. isn't it absurd that some people might use their grief as a way of humble bragging to mm. your, to an audience of anonymous an anonymous audience for validation. If it's the former and not the latter, I'm disappointed because I thought that was a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think. Well, you could you could say that what he's doing there is suggesting that like the paucity of dialogue of discourse and of the state of the discourse is such that the only way we know how to articulate that we're basically okay is by listing some stuff that we've got and that there's maybe a part of this woman who wants to say to her is her mother isn't it that like she wants to express something a bit deeper than that but the only language that she has just because she exists in you know capitalist mm. 21st century is you know i've got a, got a big house and mm. a job or whatever yeah um or that she or maybe the point is that she's like pathetic and basic and venal and dumb and so that's the only thing she thinks is of any merit i don't know Mm. i think that's enough bo burnham for now if if anybody does have any views on this or further comments please do let us know you can get in touch at at satire no more on twitter at talk about satire on instagram or drop us an email at satire no more I just want everyone to know that they can get in touch to let us know. We I do think, that at the end, though, don't we? Well, we we'll just do it here as well, just to say, like, if you're listening to this and you're so annoyed by the fact that we're getting it wrong still yeah. in your mind, uh, then feel free to reach out and let us know and we'll impact you. Yeah, sit up. <laughs> Email us. <laughs> and <laughs> get ready for the next section where we're going to talk about brassite. We are, yeah. So, okay. as I say, I think that's enough, Bo Burnham, for now. Let's talk about brassite. Fist-headed man destroys church... Um, okay, your voice sounds a bit funny there, but I, I know you've got a cold. So yeah, why don't we talk about another piece of satire? Car drives past window in town. A piece of satire that isn't at all controversial, and that's Chris Morris's Brass Eye. Now fact me till I fart. Joe, are we just going to play clips from the day's day now until the end of the podcast? 
no, no, we don't want to lose the podcast, do we? Um, that is the end of the quotes. Happy now. <laughs> Younger listeners might be wondering what's happening, but those who were, but those were all timeless lines from Chris Morris's satirical swipe at the news, the day to day, an ensemble production steered by Chris Morris and at that time Amanda Iannucci as well. Brass Eye was then originally broadcast on Channel 4 in the format of six episodes in 1997 and followed in 2001 with the infamous paedophile special 20 Years Old This Year. And even the day-to-day wasn't actually the actual origin of the original Brass Eye because that was a TV adaptation of the radio show On The Hour, which was written by a whole host of comedians often cited on this podcast. Morris Iannucci, Stephen Wells, Andrew Glover, Stuart Lee, Richard Herring, David Quantic and the cast. The cast, we're always talking about him, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, the day-to-day. Uh, for the day-to-day, Peter, um, Peter Bainan joined the writing team and Lee and Herring were replaced by Arthur Matthews and he who should not be named. Well... I think you can name him because there's no such thing as being cancelled, is there? So who who was the, the person who also wrote this? We could both say his name three times into a mirror and see if the curse is real. All right, let's do that. Graham Linehan, Graham Linehan, Graham Linehan. Oh no, the Graham Linehan man <laughs> is coming. <laughs> that would be such a good, um, really inappropriate um, sketch, wouldn't it? The Graham Linehan man comes round with his toolbox Mission. and like does your plumbing for you or something yeah yeah but only if you summon him three times in a mirror which would actually be quite a helpful way to be able to summon an actual plumber wouldn't it It you could just go in your bathroom and go plumber 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 and then they had to be there yeah yeah Yeah. but anyway so so that's who that was wasn't it yeah um you're right there. Graham then a handy man is very funny. Yeah, sorry. Um, so, as Adam mentioned just then, this is the 20th anniversary of the Brass Eye Special. So we're going to actually spend the rest of this episode talking about that. And it's really useful that there was that programme uh, on Radio 4 the other week. So, it, so you could get all the bio, biography facts from your little speech there before, isn't there? So With the reunion. Which, we'll, yeah. um, I'll just say we'll link that in the show notes so people can listen to that Radio 4 programme as ever. We won't. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about Brass Eye with uh, ourselves and with our friend, a fellow co-director of the York Research Unit for the Study of Satire, um, Associate Professor Dr. Rob Edgar. And there's another reason you're thinking about Brass Eye at the moment, particularly you in particular, isn't there, Adam? That's right, yeah. In the autumn, I'm going to run a new module on the literature programme at York St. John University, a third year module research-based module called satire and literature and one of the texts is actually going to be the brass eye the paedophile special a choice which seems sensible when i made it back in april and put it on reading this but which i am now actually slightly daunted by having recently rewatched the special for the first time in a few years and i did it through a gritted teeth glimmer yeah well i mean i think you are supposed to aren't you but i mean just in case anybody listening wants to form a, an incorrect opinion that university literature modules are just people watching uh, offensive uh, or things they think are offensive tv programs that aren't even literature and kind of sitting around chatting about them um it's probably best if you defend the credentials of your satire and literature module so what is on it apart from (laughs) morris and like explain how you're going to be making that clever as opposed to just watching telly well i'm going to start with a modest proposals because it, it, you can't really talk about satire, it seems. Something we've learned on yeah. this podcast without talking about Jonathan Swift's modest proposal, which yeah. is where he recommends eating made babies to solve the famine in Ireland. That's what people say, isn't it? Ugh, you can't say anything these days without talking about <laughs> Jonathan Swift's modest proposal. That's right. Yeah, so you're starting with um, 
some, some classic ocean that's right satire there. That's and I, good and I, I should say that every week i'm going to pair a text with some theory or philosophy mm. about satire as well so week two i thought animal farm because it's a pretty like, short. Al- pretty short mm. but also a pretty robust example of allegorical satire yes. like people always talk about animal farm as well don't they when they're thinking of things that are satirical and it's like the real world but with animals yeah. as you said earlier almost then going right back to juvenile so mm-hmm. the sort of ancient satire where we get the words from a lot of the concepts and then in week four i'm gonna we're gonna hit the brass eye special quite a lot earlier than i than i thought until i look right. back at the reading list but yeah we're gonna get straight into that so mm-hmm. sort of open up questions about issues of taste then we're going to talk about scoop which is an evelyn war novel yep. you know your oh, ancestor evelyn, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, then a graphic novel, Bitch Planet, by Kelly Sue DeConnick. You've read that, haven't you? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this is—I won't do this for all of them—but this is a, a text where a graphic novel that imagines a dystopic future where any woman who doesn't fit the very narrow parameters of what a woman should be like mm. in a sort of capitalist patriarchy is put on a penal colony planet called Bitch Planet. Uh, Cold Comfort Farm in week eight, then week nine, the death of Stalin. Uh, the film. Graphic novel. Yeah, but with with a strong encouragement to watch the film if if you so desire. Catch twenty two in week ten. Think about satire in long novel form, Um, and then in week eleven, two really obscure pieces of satire that I'm writing a book chapter about uh, called the Satirists and Endymion, the Universal Satirist, both written by not famous authors in the in the mid eighteenth century. And then we're going to end it with a film in week twelve, the film Greed with Steve Coogan. Okay, that sounds like a broadly credible module. Thank you. I think you probably okay. To, uh, to watch this scandalous, um, controversial TV show. Mm. Um, so, yeah, shall we talk a little bit about Peter Geddon first before we talk to, to Rob? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, uh, Peter Geddon, what even is it? Was it? So, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Brass Eye came out in 1997, six episodes. It's a satire of the news. It's sort of a satire of sort of panorama type news mm. programs as well, isn't it? And, and to some extent Sky News programmes but then a few years later they did this paedophile special which you know as we'll talk about more was quickly heralded as being the sickest television show ever made it's just 30 minutes long um, and sick can it be? It, it's, they pack so much in it's yeah. 30 minutes long um, presented by Chris Morris and the other familiar faces and basically they're, they're, it's as if they're doing like a live broadcast in a studio where they're discussing the paedophile epidemic and yeah the paedophile epidemic that swept the nation um mm, Mm. that's the premise yeah um and along the way they do all the things they normally do which is get sort of vapid celebrities to say stupid things Mm. i mean to bring everyone up to speed there's actually a quote here from an article written by our friend sharon lockyer friend Mm -hmm. of the pod previous guest and her collaborator fiona atwood uh, written in 2009, so eight years after it was broadcast in the Popular Communications Journal, the article is called The Sickest Television Show Ever, Peter Geddon in the British Press. Um, and it, it offers a quick summary of the situation, doesn't it? Joe, would you like to read this out? Or shall okay. I? Yeah, uh, right. So it goes like this. The Brass Eye series and one-off special Peter Geddon were written, produced and presented by Chris Morris. Supporters of Morris hail him as a comic genius and satirist in the best traditions of Hogarth and Swift. His detractors have demonised him as unacceptably tasteless and needlessly shocking. That bit is a quote within the article. Um, Morris has been responsible for some of the most controversial radio and television shows in broadcasting history, and his pranks and fake news reports, such as announcing the death of media celebrities, for example, DJ Jimmy Savile, um, 
have. have received popular media attention. Morris has been sacked from several radio stations due to his controversial broadcasts as he takes the, quote, hypocrisy, hysteria and ignorance of contemporary media as his targets, end quote. Some commentators describe him as a media terrorist. <laughs> so as we're now joined by Rob Edgar, I suppose one of the things we can do is we can ask the answer prancer. Yeah, is, he... is Rob Edgar the answer prancer? <laughs> no, no, yeah, Rob Edgar's the answer prancer <laughs> and we can ask him, is Chris Morris actually a best satirist in the tradition of Swift and Hogarth or is he a media terrorist? Yeah, and obviously listeners at home won't be able to see the... Um, Rob Edgar dancing the, on the... the prancing. <laughs> yeah, but you have to take our word for it that that is definitely what's happening. So let's get Rob Hello, on the Rob. Just, just whilst we phone Rob, a funny story about Rob Edgar is okay. it actually says on his office door, there's a quote there, and I love it, I think of it every day, it goes... Um, I don't think I can take much more of this. And then the response is, that's what you think. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very good, isn't Let's it? get him on the phone. Yeah. Hello, dear listeners. Just before we play this conversation, um, it's worth bearing in mind the sound quality is going to change. Because although we were really excited about being in the booth, as soon as we got in the booth and we fired up Zoom... Everything broke. Everything broke, yeah. And the computer shut down on us for no reason. Yeah, Yeah, it was all kinds of bother, wasn't it? It's almost as if no one's used this booth in 18 months. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. So we had no no choice but to conduct our second on-location interview on the hoof, didn't we? Yeah, in, in... Quite an echoey room, with I think our, it's safe to say. Yeah, with our backup recorder. So it's not Which our... is a telephone. <laughs> so yeah. it's not our usual quality. And you also, can hear the words though, so don't get fussy. You can, and also this is not an interview, is it? It's a little chat between some fans, isn't it? And then we'll maybe come back at the end of it and contextualise that. Yeah, so see you more see you for more ramble chat at the end. Bye. Bye. So hello Rob Edgar. Oh, hello. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. So this is our second attempt at recording this. Listeners who are listening carefully will realise that we are now... In a different place. Yeah, in the same location at a different place. Um, How would that work? Sorry, we're we're in a different place where we were previously, which was in the sound booth. And we're now all together in the same place. Oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) So, yes. uh, Welcome welcome to the podcast, Rob. So we thought we'd just have a general chat about... um, Brass Eye and Chris Morris, seeing as it's 20 years since Peter Geddon. Um, so, Rob, when did you first encounter Brass Eye or the work of Chris Morris? Uh, it was, uh, <laughs> it was um, with uh, the Radio 4 stuff um, on the hour. So I first en- uh, encountered the work of Chris Morris and then kind of followed his, his work through, alongside uh, the work of Flamandu Inucci and all those people who were up and coming at that time and are still forthcoming. Mm-hmm. That works. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yes, it was. It was from that point onwards. On the hour. Yeah. What about you, Joe? Uh, I first encountered the work of Chris Morris in season one of the IT Crowd. No, that's not. That's not true. Um, I. I think I remember on the hour being on um, on car journeys occasionally, and also knowing me, knowing you, in my parents' car. I mean, and yeah, and then I. Then I had the CDs of the Knowing Me, Knowing You radio show and like Rob, I more or less followed everything sequentially as it happened. Hmm. And, and I liked it all, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, nobody asked, but it was the opposite for me. It was the, it was, it? It was, it was yeah, the other way around. It was the other way around, yeah. We set that up well, didn't we? So, yeah, it was, um, yeah, when I was an undergraduate, there were some people who knew about this stuff. Well, my friend Matty in particular would say words like moribund, which is obviously from Knowing Me, Knowing You, mm. and uh, we watched... We watched Brass Eye, I thought it was hysterically funny. 
And then we watched all of Alan Partridge, you know me, no new, I'm Alan Partridge. And then when we watched all of that, we watched the day-to-day, which is obviously going, I'm doing it the wrong way around. Um, and it was a bit of a come down watching the day-to-day after having watched Brass Eye, because Brass Eye is so extreme. But I realise returning to it now, they're doing different things. They are. How, what, how would you say they're different? Well, I think Brass Eye is a much more juvenilian satire in the sense that it's much more harsher and scathing and, and stuff, isn't it? But also I think it's a satire on a particular part of the media. It feels like panorama, doesn't it? It's kind of like that particular mode. Um, it goes, It's going for the jugular and it's looking at issues that prompt a particular kind of media hysteria. hysteria. Whereas the day-to-day, watching it again now, is a parody of all television, isn't it? Yeah. It's not just, it's mostly news, but it's a sketch show um, and they parody all sorts of things like MTV and uh, 999 and Candid Camera TV programmes, all that stuff. It's all in there. Yeah. Attitude Night. Yeah. Attitude Night and BBC Two. Yeah. What's your absolute favourite, Rob, Chris Morris moment? Oh, there are so many Chris Morris moments that I could pick. My, I think the one that stands out really is, um, I, I really like the musical parodies. All of them are really good. I really like 4Q. Mm. Um, I, there's something about that that, yeah, it's, it's outrageous. And any kind of close analysis of that is, yeah, it's kind of really problem, wonderfully problematic moment. But I think the bit is in, um, is in the um, Peter Farr special. Mm-hmm where uh, the, the sequence with Simon Pegg playing the guy in the stocks, and it's uh, Chris Morris's face <laughs> when, um, or giggling about it, I feel like I shouldn't laugh, it feels so, it's kind of really transgressive, difficult moment, mm. but hysterically funny, is the bit where um, Simon Pegg's character says, uh, I just don't fancy him. And, uh, you know, it's kind of almost a disappointment on Chris yeah. Morris's face. Is, uh, okay. That's my son Johnny, all right? Have a look at him, now. Are you prepared to tell me you want to have sex with my son? No. You're ashamed, I, aren't you? No, I'm not ashamed. All right, then tell me you want to have sex with my son. I don't. Why not? I don't, I don't fancy him. What do you mean? I just don't. I don't find him attractive. I'm sorry. Good. Actually, you're prepared to tell the father of a six-year-old that you want to have sex with him on live television. I didn't. Yeah, effectively, you did. You did. He did. That's one cheater. He did, didn't he? Yes, um, I mean, that, that is just so... Yeah. I didn't. You did. So Chris Morris is presenting the paedophile with his own son, isn't he? And he's saying, mm. yes, why don't you fancy him, yeah. But it's, I mean, even that's making a point, isn't it? Because, it, you know, every time there's some sort of tragic case in the news of children going missing, like, it's well documented, isn't it, that young girls and blonde girls are covered in the media much more intensively, and mm. you see far more images of them there is a kind of tone around the discussion of of certain kinds of children more than others and it and, and i think he is kind of gesturing to that there isn't he well, it's a similar sketch in the day-to-day isn't there when he's talking to is he talking to a child who's been kidnapped or something or some and he asks about the abuser and he's like was, was he as handsome as i am was that's he, in brassai is he in brassai so it's, um, it's in the sex episode where she's talking about her uncle I yeah think. Yeah, and he's like, was he, was he as he handsome, handsome as me? Yeah. Well, and also I think probably the provo- <laughs> a, 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 at the same time the provocative nature of a lot of, of interviewers, mm. the mm. fact that they'll goad and you know push the, the person, whoever it is, in whatever situation they're in, however uncomfortable <laughs> the, the, you know what's happened to them is, 
they're, yeah, they're kind of well, trying to force a response. Like something that definitely was in day to day is when he has the woman on who's been getting celebrities to make jam. Yes. And they've raised fifteen hundred pounds. Yeah. Like, the poultry sum of fifteen hundred pounds that wasn't worth six months of your time. Oh, I th- I thought of that interview specifically the other week when I was listening to Emma Barnett on Women's Hour interviewing some women who joined Extinction Rebellion. Yeah. And she was just going, well, well, why are you doing it though? But aren't you just being really annoying? Mm. But, but well, maybe people don't support you because they think it's stupid what you're doing. Mm. And uh, yeah, the tone was. Uh, who would have thought that the closest? Everybody always says Jeremy Paxman is um, is Chris Morris's character in the day to day in Brassai, but maybe it's Emma Barnett. Yeah, well, he makes her cry, doesn't he, by saying she's ugly, really mm. ugly, and then she starts crying, and then he goes all quiet. And he's like, "Are you sad now?" Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. that is that provocative kind of. Do you have a favourite Chris Morris moment, Joe? Yeah, when he's when he's playing denim in the IT crowd. No, it's not that. Um, do you like uh, the IT crowd? You mentioned it twice. Like well, just because that's I think the IT crowd is Chris Morris's most surprising and out of character appearance in anything, isn't it? Like mm. you don't expect to, that that doesn't fit as neatly with everything else that he's done. But mm-hmm. uh, I like Vanessa Feltz speaking in the voice, speaking the apparent words of a, a young. Of a series of people who've been murdered by criminals in the in Brassai when she says, "Do you even know what a feeling is? I do, but I can't have them anymore. <laughs> I hate you." <laughs> and uh, Jeff Boycott, Jeff Boycott's "Get out of bed, get right out of bed" speech uh, would definitely be up there. But the more we talk, the more I'll think of. Yeah. Do you have a favourite Chris Morris moment at all? Um, yeah. Well, the, the moment that I think of them, I mean, I want to say, oh, it's the day shall come because he researched it for mm. fifteen years and it was crossing generic boundaries. But it's not that. And I want to mm. say, oh, it, it's four lions for similar reasons. But no, it's not that. It's the bit when the, it's the news report where they've trapped the most dangerous paedophile in the country on a rocket and fired him into space before realising there's also a six-year-old child trapped on board with the monster. And it goes, scientists say, this is exactly what we didn't want to happen. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the moment out of the whole canon that comes back to me the most often, I think. Although I also like it when they have that, I can't remember which celebrity it is, it might have been Sebastian Coe playing music that will repel a paedophile. Mm. And it's like really like nasty electronic stuff. And it gets to the screaming stuff and it gets to the end and he's like, that was this track by the band Smash My Brother's Face It. <laughs> He says it completely, square, like as if that's. I mean, that's how out of touch these politicians are. They think there might yeah. be a mainstream band called Smash My Brothers Facing. So that's some favourite moments. And now we've got a, a binary question, haven't we? Yes, Rob. It's yes. one one thing or the or the other. You're the Arbitrate answer. on this. Rob can be the answer prancer. Yeah. So is Chris Morris? We were looking at an article earlier which had this this phrase in it. Is Chris Morris a satirist in the best tradition of Hogarth and Swift? And Swift. <laughs> Hogarth and Swift. Or is he some kind of, quote, media terrorist? Uh, yes, I, I, I know the article and the phrase media terrorist, and I've never understood what media terrorist uh, means. I guess what they're driving at with it is that he's kind of attacking the very form that he appears in. Mm. Um, but, I, yeah, he, he's, he's a satirist in the best tradition of Hogarth and Swift. That is the answer. Correct. That's the only answer. Yes. <laughs> We pranced our way to the right side of the room there. <laughs> Even though he's yeah. quite reluctant to name himself as a satirist. Yeah, yeah. Um, what did he say about that? Why doesn't he like being called a satirist? I think he. I think. I think the point. I've, I've, we'll have to check this before the episode goes out. But I think the point he was making is that satire can occur in all different genres. So he's a mm. he's a comic who uses satire rather than a satirist, and satirist comes with all sorts of elite connotations that he doesn't want necessarily to be 
the thing people think of when they think of him. But the majority of his work is satirical. It is, yeah. yeah. There are some exceptions, but yeah. Mm. Like, like Denim in the IT crowd. Which yeah. is a wonderful performance. Yes, yeah. it is, yeah. And Blue Jam isn't necessarily satirical to the same extent, is it? No, not at all. I mean, it's yeah, really surreal and extremely dark in places, but not particularly satirical. Mm. But, but yeah, the majority of the other stuff is. Yeah, he did say in that same interview where he said he doesn't like to be labelled as a satirist. That was the interview where someone said to him, do you think satire is dead? And he said, no, I think saying satire is dead is handing in your cards and you have a responsibility to, to find new ways to satirise things as they become more absurd. That's, That's a good a, answer. That great line, isn't it, when he's like, you can't necessarily change things, but you have a responsibility to remember every stupidity as it happens yeah. and never forget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting, though, isn't it? That, that talking about Blue Jam, where, and I would say, like, if anything, his main aim comes across as being in Blue Jam, just a desire to like unsettle, disturb, and upset people, or quite frequently, it's that. So, you, I guess, that is some context for why you might, why one might feel that Peter Geddon is is just out to upset people, mm. where and perhaps for some. That obscured the, the satirical work that it's doing. Yeah, but and all of his stuff, I think, apart from perhaps the IT crowd, is really provocative. It, it's you know, it, it, there's a, I I get don't know about you, but I get a sense of threat mm. from from Chris Morris in his performance uh, as well as in the kind of material he's he's, he's dealing with. Mm. So yeah, I can see why people might think that the, the function of of Brassard was to shock, and it kind of is as yeah. well. If it didn't shock so much, it wouldn't raise the issues. It yeah. Have. Isn't Jam soundtracked by Aphex Twin as well? I believe it is. Yeah. Yes. Which sort of set, that's kind of alienating and aggressive <laughs> music, isn't it? It certainly can be, yes. <laughs> yeah. And like when he, in the, the bits of interviews he does with Stuart Lee in Comedy Vehicle, whenever, whenever I watch those, I'm like, are, are these guys friends? Or do, does he actually hate him? Again, there's, there's a bit of threat in there in a strange way, isn't there? Well, even on the Adam Buxton podcast, uh, oh. which is great, that two-parter, there's even that, there's an intensity in that mm. which which comes through quite clearly. So I guess it's kind of a bit Chris Morris. I, I can only suppose, but I guess it's a bit how Chris Morris is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, it's, really, but, but it's kind of a problem, isn't it, though, with, with Brass Eye? And with the paedophile special, that is it a problem? I'll make it a question. Do you think it's a problem that what it became about was the programme rather than what the programme was talking about? Um, no, I'd, I'd say not, because in being about the programme, the, the discussion then is inherently about what it's talking about, because every time somebody says something dumb about it, like some of the uh, little extracts we might have a look at in a bit, every time somebody says, oh, you know, this is just taking, finding amusement in the most disgusting thing that anybody could do, um, make as the sun said, making light of the sickest perversion as if it's in any way amusing. Like the minute that somebody makes a contribution like that, it, that just opens the way for everybody to explain and think about why, why that it isn't that and why it's why it's about the media coverage and moral panic rather than it is about saying it's funny that there's such a thing as paedophiles. I do think it's interesting that, I mean, we've got some of the initial reviews here. It, it almost feels like they're going out of their way to misunderstand what was happening here. And this one that Joe's just quoted from is bizarre. So this is in The Sun, July 27, 2001, headline, new low for Channel 4. We believe making light of the sickest perversion 
in any is we don't believe making light of the sickest profession is any way amusing. Last night's show may have raised a laugh in trendy wine bars frequented by TV executives who have lost touch with the real world, but to most Britons, the defence of our children's innocence is paramount. Their safety is sacrosanct. It sets up an interesting binary, doesn't it, as you say, yeah. between trendy wine bar frequenting TV executives and real world Britons who don't yeah. think paedophilia is funny. But no one said, no one is laughing at paedophilia, are they? And also, nobody is saying, let's not defend children. No. I mean, I find it problematic the way they've expressed that. It's not about defending children's innocence, is it? Then. The problem with paedophiles isn't that they make children not be innocent. Like, that's a weird kind of way to phrase it. But even in 2001, there's an implicit kind of urban elite. Yeah. Uh, there's a class dimension to it. Mm. These urban elites who think yeah. they love paedophiles. Yeah. But it, it, it's not. It's just like, it's, it sounds too obvious to say, but it, it's a satire on media hysteria, isn't it? It's a satire on the way, as we were talking about earlier, the way media tricks, like, sort of is outraged but also sexualises and fetishises these cases in the way it describes them. It's a satire on celebrity endorsements. Mm-hmm. It's, it's no one, it's not saying paedophiles are hilarious. It's saying the way that you people talk about paedophiles is hilarious and potentially dangerous. Yeah. I, I do recall that, that, I can't remember which newspaper it was, but at the time it was pointed out, the kind of hypocrisy, because they had a, a, you know, a really kind of t- damning takedown of, of Brassai on one side. On the next side, they were pointing out um, you, the, the physicality of a, of a, a really young uh, celebrity, a sixteen-year-old yeah. celebrity, and these two things seemingly coexisting in the newspaper. You know, it's doing the very thing that that well, Bra- Brassai was was trying to satirise. Wasn't it the Sun that had the countdown to when Charlotte Church would be legal? That, that was yeah. it. Yeah, that was the one. Yeah. As if, like, the minute she turns 16, she's going to be like, find me a sun reader. I wish to uh, lose my childhood innocence this very minute. <laughs> the yeah. Express on July 30, 2001, their headline was, The Brass Ice Booth takes satire a taboo too far. Call me old-fashioned, but I do think there are some taboos, and laughing about adults having sex with children is one of them. Well, I, th- I don't think... Adults should laugh about having sex with children, but that's also clearly not what was happening. It almost doesn't need stating, does it? And it's not, it doesn't occur in the TV programme. It's a great quote for people who haven't seen it, and Mm. therefore don't need to see it, because Mm. outrage is is the response. The Daily Mail, of course, the sickest TV show ever. Furious Channel 4 repeats spoof child sex film. This offensive programme trivialises child abuse. The crimes committed by paedophiles against children and young people are among the most abhorrent in the criminal justice system. They are no laughing matter and have no place in satire. But, like, the, <laughs> the things don't have a place in satire because they are a laughing matter, isn't it? That's the point. You satirise serious things, not things that are hilarious. Yeah. I mean, again, it locates the satire on the, paed- the, the abuse of children, but that's mm. not what the... It's not what it's about, is it? But it wasn't just... I mean, it's easy to go after the Mail and the Express, but clearly uh, also in the centre-left independent, this reader's well, letter you've got here. Yeah, I couldn't find that many reviews that weren't like this. But there's a reader's letter in the independent on July 31st, 2001, where they wrote, unfunny and unsuitable, and it lacked the satirical ingredients of wit and irony. Its intended target was the media, correct, but the satire misfired totally, and instead... It lampooned child protection agencies and charities. So it's a slightly more nuanced mm. response. I can see how if you were part of some kind of big drive to actually 
take some positive steps or to, to so if, if you were engaged in something supportive and charitable around these issues, you might feel that you were being satirised as like a sort of ridiculous hysterical idiot who's herding children into stadiums. But, I mean, I so obviously not mm. what they were doing. But yeah, Rob, you've, you've taught this this offensive programme that trivialises child abuse. Um, how did you... How did you do that? Well, that's exactly why I chose to to uh, <laughs> yeah to use it. Now it was um, it was about ten years ago. Uh, it was a second year undergraduate module. The way I I mean I was quite nervous about teaching it, and it had been a little while since I'd last watched it. So going back to it was a bit. Um, but I I set it against Top Gear, and in particular the India special, and it was around the time that Richard Hammond had made uh, the comment about. Mexico, Mexicans, and yeah. So it was basically looking at something which was presented as light entertainment and arguably was offensive, indeed racist, uh, and in, in some of the comments that were made and some of the representations that were there, and then Brass Eye, which was seeking to satirise difficult attitudes. So the two actually work quite well together by contrast and comparison. But it was, it was really interesting seeing the response. It was far more positive to Brass Eye than I thought it was going to be. It had dated a little bit, but not too much. And I think that was one of the really interesting things about it, is that TV has morphed into what the day-to-day is, or the way the day-to-day presents itself, and the way that Brass Eye presents itself. So um, you can't see the, the join anymore, really. So that was quite an interesting change. A lot of students didn't kind of see that, or couldn't see it. looked a bit too authentic, mm. in a way. Um, but they got what it was trying to do. And the other thing that I think was a significant change was the nature of celebrity. And that the celebrities that featured in this and in other episodes of Brass Eye were they're of a different order to the kind of celebrities. Celebrity is different now, isn't it, from when Brass Eye came out? And these people like Simon Mayo and Dr Fox and Noel Edmonds and Rolf Harris, you know, for, for better or worse, and in some cases definitely for worse, these were like household names and institutions. They were... And they were probably a generation or so older than the average age of a celebrity now. And it would be different, wouldn't it, if Brass Eye was going after the latest winner of Love Island or somebody from Bake Off or whatever. That, that would feel more like punching down. Whereas when you can get MPs and elderly DJs to say nonsense... There's some, some work is being done there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it's what those people rep- represent, which for some of them, as you say, we know, <laughs> yeah, we know they represent really an, awful lot, yeah. <laughs> an awful lot more now than they did then. But there, there's a kind of sense of authority and um, yeah, power that those people mm. have. And you, you're right, you know, you get somebody from, from Love Island and it would be punching down, but also I think things like Love Island are intrinsically parodic themselves. So you're kind of satirising, it would be an attempt to satirise something which is already slightly self-satirical. I'm, not, I'm sure not everybody would read or watch Love Island for that reason, but it has that element to it, I think. I mean, they have, I, love, I mean, Love Island, I've watched, I've watched a lot of it recently, and it's like the commentary is done by a comedian. Like, mm. it's, it's presented as a comedic thing. Yeah, which, like, Big Brother didn't used to be, did it? Big Brother, they'd have the Geordie people, but they wouldn't do jokes in the commentary. Yeah, and that's the same for a lot of them, isn't it? You've got, like, comedians on Bake Off, Mm. Sewing Bee... Um, I mean, what listening to Bake, what listening to Love Island reminds me of the most is Harry Hill's TV book. Yeah. Where you've got someone, like, making jokes about what's happening on the screen. I wonder what celebrities... you uh, If Chris Morris were to do another series of Brass Eye now, which I know he won't, 
who would who would you go after? And whoever he did go after that provides us with a, probably a useful list of people to have another look at in <laughs> 10 years' time. But it's the politicians that are interesting as well. Mm. You know, when we've got someone who is a, effectively a panel show host as, as Prime Minister, mm, then yeah. where do you go with that? Yeah. The satirising of that on... on yeah, it, it's, it's, it becomes really, really difficult. I think if I were him, I would regard um, getting Owen Jones to do it as a massive coup. I think that would be, that would be quite good. Yeah. You, well, you need someone who takes themselves extremely seriously yeah, exactly. and thinks of themselves yeah. as quite pious and, and just right, don't you? So you need yeah. someone. There's not that many people who exist without that ironic frame now, is there? But and also, so they've got to take themselves seriously and be really quite well known mm. to a, a broad sweep of people. Yeah. So, yeah, that's Owen Jones and... Uh, you have a think if anybody else occurs and then we'll pass that list along. Someone like Andrew O'Neill, you could probably, what do they call him? What's his funny, Brillo. That's what they call him in Private Eye. Oh, Andrew right. O'Neill, they call him Brillo. Yeah, so you could, they could get him. Paul Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. And there would, be, there would be still a few politicians who'd be very good. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's an interesting one to ponder, isn't it? It is. <laughs> I'll make a list. <laughs> I mean, the article that we were talking about earlier by Lockwood Natwood draws this conclusion. It says, while recognising that paedophiles commit horrific crimes and are treated with the abhorrence they deserve, the programme argued that this did not justify the media's preoccupation with demonising paedophiles rather than addressing the underlying problems of what paedophilia is, the extent of child sexual offences, and how paedophiles and their crimes can be addressed. Paedogeddon questioned whether or to what extent the media treatment of paedophiles and paedophilia is accurate and responsible. I think that's a good conclusion. Yeah. I, I would agree. I mean, that's, <laughs> that is absolutely that's what he's doing. Yeah. The avoidance of doubt. Agreed. If any students are listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean the thing is, so it went well when you taught it. It went all right. You didn't get any. Anyone was ter- like traumatized by it or complained. Um, not at all. I mean, I, I gave it some some framing, mm. and obviously it was in an, in an analytical context. Mm. So it wasn't. It went down very well, and there was a lot of really really good discussion around it. I did use some other other clips. I mentioned earlier um, one of my favourite bits. I used the the MTV stuff and the four Q stuff. Yeah. As well in in semin- in kind of seminar discussions, so there was something targeted to look at as well. Yeah. So it wasn't it, that was quite because it took it, it. It became about the form and the approach, not just about representations of media and paedophilia. Yeah. Uh, which that was quite handy. Yeah. And you did a screening of it, didn't you, as well? Yeah. So you could watch their reactions in real time. Yeah, about 60 of them in a lecture theatre. I'm tempted to do that, just so that I know what, <laughs> just so that I know what, what goes down. I mean, when I rewatched this recently, having not watched it for about 10 years, after I'd put it on the reading list and set it, I thought, oh, I'd better watch it. And the bit that really, that it was most worried about was a sequence where, um, a sequence, sequence where they're saying, they're describing a man having sex with a female child, but then they've done a reconstruction on the screen where they've got adult actors, and I think she's like a porn star acting out this scene, and it's very, it's very porny. And I suppose the joke is again there's media sexualization of child abuse and, and these kinds of crimes. Um, but I did think, you know, whichever way you look at it, that is a representation of child abuse, and that could be, uh, you know, understandably upsetting. But that wasn't an issue when you taught it. It, it wasn't, no. Um, and I mean, I can't remember that. The response to that bit specifically but there were moments of, of uh, it, the collective response to it i think was a really interesting one and i imagine very different to 
people watching it on their own and that in itself was mm. I think really noteworthy and the discomfort in the laughter mm. at yeah. points was was really useful I think for everyone to experience that that actually this isn't meant to be laugh out loud funny and this isn't necessarily right the way through and actually at points this might be intended to make me feel really really uncomfortable I think if you all watch it together then they will take their cues from you won't you so when they do something really like bitingly satirical or quite dark on the screen if you kind of stand up in front and go like ha yeah <laughs> then they'll, they'll understand that it's satirical and that it's not just uh, laughing you know, Britain's sickest perversion. It's like the sign language person who comes on late at night, yeah. but instead of translating it, I'm you just giving flag cues. The this is, yeah. yeah, this is how the satire's <laughs> working. <laughs> yeah, I'll try that. I'll try that. Well, thanks very much for your time, yeah. Rob. Hopefully we'll continue to be colleagues even after I've taught Brass Eye in 2021. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, I really enjoyed um, that conversation with Rob Edgar just now. Mm. in the past it's it's amazing to think isn't it this show in the first decade of the 21st century was so controversial it wasn't aired for a long time it even like questions were raised in parliament i think about this mm. show and and yet you know it's a really important part of television history but you know what i'm mm. not talking about brass eye oh i'm talking about dick and dumb in the bungalow all oh, right i thought you were going to say yeah. i know yeah did you see what i did there yes, yeah, yeah it's actually dick and dumb in the bungalow which um some tory mps who've never seen it got it banned and taken off air or they got upset about it and then it wasn't on telly anymore which is a fucking disgrace is that real yeah so oh i'll i can't remember his name but one of them like so there was there was like on the BBC website you could play Dick and Dom computer games, right? And um, he thought they were disgusting and puerile and silly, and that you know this isn't good use of licensed payers' money. And coincidentally or not, Dick and Dom in the bungalow um, didn't air for much longer after that. I think it was also because Dom wore his wore a T-shirt that said "Morning Wood" on it. Okay, um, and I they do remember felt that. Felt like that was a, a secret joke, but yeah, it. Cancel culture gone mad because I really is. bloody loved, even though I was way too old for it. I loved Dick and Dom in the Bungalow. It was the best thing between 2001 and 2006, apart from all the other things that were better. <laughs> it was the best thing on between 8:30 a.m. and 10:30 yeah. a.m. Yeah. Wow, that's insane. I know. So, so yeah. that happened to Dick and Dom, but also it did happen to Brass Eye. Yeah. So yeah, like, let's just round up by thinking about the questions of taste and offence and satire and whether you think ultimately Brass Eye did do something important satirically, something worthwhile and something that's worth the upset that it caused. What do you think? Well, I think on the one hand, you know, it, it's, it has got a pretty clear set of targets if you watch it and you're an astute viewer, um, mm. which I think were points worth making. And those are things about the inconsistencies in the ways in which young people are sexualized. Mm. So there's the paedophile hysteria, but as we talked about in the interview, there's also things and like the conversation the and the conversation. There's things, uh, sorry, things that we talked about in the conversation. There's things like counting down to Charlotte Church's 16th birthday in the same yeah. newspaper where this paedophile yeah. hysteria is happening. So th there's that. There's the suggestion that you know, demonite that that this hysteria around lone paedophiles is actually distraction from the fact that statistically most people are offended by uh, most people, people are, vict are victimized yeah. by people they know, um, and also just sort of the dominant dominant media the grammar of dominant media mm. and all of that stuff. So, yeah, however, is it an issue that it seems a lot of people didn't get it? Well, it is and it isn't, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, because people, I think, 
you know, it was kind of one for the fans anyway, really, wasn't it? Especially by the time it came out. Yeah. You had to know what you were getting into to watch it, which didn't stop a lot of people who hadn't watched it saying yeah. it should never have been aired. But, I mean, it's always a big ask, isn't it? Sorry, Mum, I know that's not proper grammar. To expect satire to, um, to change anything. Yeah. Do you think anything about news reporting around these issues or anything else has changed as a result of Brass Eye? No, I think the opposite has happened, which is that mainstream media looks at, has looked at Brass Eye and realised that actually if you do things within an ironic lens, you can get away with more. So now, like we were talking about in the conversation, mm. you know, you get things... where So where once um, Brass Eye can say, like we talked about in the conversation, Brass Eye would go, you know, we, we shouldn't admire these celebrities, we should view them with a certain degree of scorn and be aware of the way they're used here's an ironic way of foregrounding that, then mainstream media goes, well, oh, if we ironise celebrities, we can actually have more of this culture, and it's so no longer... Are, are you saying mainstream media created a different kind of cult of celebrity which was more ironic and tongue-in-cheek? So how does that work? Like, the six o'clock news creates Love Island so there can be some no, ironic not, celebrities? Not necessarily the news, but I mean, no. things like, as we talked about in the interview, so celebrity culture, celebrities... There's a time where you take celebrities very seriously mm. and then they are the targets of scorn when they do something wrong or ludicrous or something. Mm. But now where there's a degree of ludicrousness built into the celebrity model, yeah. then it's no longer surprising when a celebrity does something stupid. It's almost yeah. expected. And I think that owes something to what Chris Morris was doing like in a way that's backfired. If that make, does that make any sense? I it's think so, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? That's another angle to the whole... You know, like, the age-old, slightly boring conversation of, like, is satire dead? Is it mm. dead because of Trump? Is it dead because of Brexit? Is it dead because of COVID? Like, maybe the fact that what it is to be a celebrity has changed so much. Because, like, I, I think you're quite interested in the 18th century, aren't you? I am. Celebrity and satire. Yeah. And you kind of, I think you've argued that satire arises because of... The, the rise of print culture, cheap print, and the rise of celebrity. Mm. And we have cheap print, but celebrity is a different yeah. ball game. Does I, that yeah. make a difference? Yeah. I think it's like celebrity... So there's a time when it's like, take celebrities fairly seriously. Mm. And now we and send then, them to the jungle and get yeah. them to do ball dancing. And then Brass Eye comes along and goes, don't take celebrities seriously, because the idea of celebrity is, is inherently ridiculous. Mm. And then celebrity culture's gone, yes, celebrity culture is ridiculous... Yeah. We know it's ridiculous, and that allows celebrity culture to continue. Yeah. See. Okay, so that's that's the defence of Brass Eye generally, and an acknowledgement of the fact that celebrity has changed as a thing. Mm. What about this episode, though? Does it, tar does it nail its targets effectively? Is it worth it for the upset that it undoubtedly caused? Is it valid? Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a... What would it, what's the word I'm after? Unitarian... Utilitarian? Utilitarian equation, isn't there? Which is, did the number of people who got it and understood it at a change, mm. how many people is that compared to how many people were yeah. massively offended by it and possibly triggered by it? Yeah. And does the ends justify the means? Um, do I think that Peter Farrell is Chris Moore is compelled to think in utilitarian ways about no, the he's not. that he produces? he's not. So what's the question? Does it... It was it worth it? Would you it? defend it? Yeah. Yes, I'd defend it. Yes, I would On defend it. On what grounds? 
Um, that it's really it, funny. It's really funny, and if you pay attention to it and understand what it's doing, it's a it's a very clever example of satire mm. and works on multiple levels. And there are lessons to be learned from what it's doing, yeah, which are applicable to the immediate climate it was published in, but also more generally. So I would justify it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just gonna like suggest one more thing, mm-hmm. and I know we're getting short on time, and that is the thing that right so it makes a really good point about news coverage or and sensationalizing of stories like this mm-hmm. and the dubious position of the child victim in stories like this in the way they're reported and about celebrities and their readiness to say any old shit that's put in front of them but in the kind of paedophile protests and agitation in the early 21st century which i think this show bounces off so the the like hounding down of people the agitating to to know if there's a paedophile living around the corner from you and all the rest of it or somebody on the um sex offenders list it isn't just the media is it arguably it's people it's Mm. people who are hysterical people who are wrong um people who misunderstand and get hold of the wrong end of the stick and that might be fueled by media reporting, but Chris Morris isn't interested in going after your average everyday idiot. I don't know if it's an urban myth or not about the like attacking of a paediatrician in oh, yeah. history. So I won't say I won't say it's true in case it's not, but like that's there. Yeah. So what he doesn't go after normal, ordinary, stupid people. No, he doesn't. And he does He does in the day-to-day, doesn't he? Because Speak Your Brains is sort of where he'll mm. get members of the public to agree with outrageous positions or... Well, they're not that outrageous, are they? Would you tighten the law to tightness number three? Is You could get over that, but, the, you? but you could get very serious people in the Vox Pop mm. thinking about it and giving an answer mm. because they're in that moment. So, yeah, yeah, I suppose it's not outrageous positions, but... Um, but that's not his target in this. Like he mm. did, I can't think of that. I'm perhaps wrong. Listeners do write in if I got this wrong, but I can't think of a bit in Brasso where he vox pops the actual public. It's always celebrities, no. isn't it? And no, it's celebrities and actors in Brasso. Yeah, sure. yeah. So why not? I don't know. I mean, why is it juvenilian satirist Chris yeah. Morris? Yeah, interested in pinpointing the stupidity of the general population. Why is it? Is, is the stupidity? Yeah, is the stupidity? of the media just worse and you can only do one thing at a time or does it make sense do you think that he is only going after the media and celebrities I think either he's made a very pessimistic assumption that people will be led no matter what so if you fix the media you can Mm. fix the people Um, or he the subject of his ire is the irresponsibility of the media rather than Mm. the personal responsibility of individuals to have a little think or option number three which is that that what happens with the media is a macrocosm of what happens individually so if you watch it you might have a little think afterwards about your own attitude yeah but he doesn't actually steer you in that way yeah but it's i mean not to evoke that that same thing that we were talking about before about you know that all the executives in the trendy london wine bars (laughs) think this is hilarious because they've got no morals but we the general public are interested in defending children's innocence but the people that that article means in the clumsy kind of category of executives in trendy London wine bars, that is who's watching this. Yeah. Right? It's not... It's probably people who are reasonably kind of 
cynical about media coverage anyway, isn't it? Yeah. So is it the kind of satire where you all just kind of nod in agreement that everyone's an idiot except you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Which maybe. Is fine. I mean, what do you think? Yeah. What do you think to that question? I think... I think it perhaps it's just a question of like you've got to you've got to decide on a singular target and go celebrity celebrities yeah. in the media and I mean can you imagine how much worse the reaction would have been if if his target was just like dumbass yeah people. I mean the thing is that unlike some other people uh, like Sasha Baron Cohen and stuff mm. like Chris Morris in his general over of work never really goes properly no. after people he always goes no. after bigger he punches up doesn't he always yeah. goes after bigger structures i'm thinking like in his in his other work like um i mean the day shall come yeah structure all the way isn't it it's the fbi it's yeah. the government and in the other one four lions yeah. it's kind of the yeah the the culture that's led to this to happen yeah. he doesn't go after specific and in the, even that weird quote we were having a laugh about earlier he's a media terrorist and he terrorizes the media mm. he's not interested in terrorising the proletariat or the individual people he's yeah. kind of doing this in the proper tradition of a satirist isn't he he's going after things bigger than himself and the audience like he's punching up yeah so maybe it's just not what not what he does yeah so, and we just assume that perhaps that sort of hysteria would disappear if the media weren't reporting things in such a histrionic irresponsible fashion yeah and if celebrities would stop it yeah as well yeah, yeah. I did think when he and Armando Inucci went to the British Museum and they were they were like trying to outdo each other in who could shout bogeys the loudest, I thought that was too much. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, is, that is further than I want to go with satire. But I don't know, maybe, maybe you could defend that. I always thought the bogey stuff was irritating. Did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the first time it was Are you more of a creamy muck muck fan? <laughs> is there anything else you liked it when they did? Uh, no, I mean, to be honest, I was too old for Dick and Dom by quite a significant Oh, margin. yes, whereas I'm so much younger, I was the <laughs> exact age bracket for it. <laughs> no, that's wrong, incorrect. Yeah, no, I mean, I shouldn't have been watching it, but I did watch it. Yeah, so fair enough, good for that's you. That's what happened, yeah. Good for you. How do you feel now about teaching Peter Geddon? I am... I feel fortified I feel mm-hmm. prepared and I feel like if nothing else I can encourage them to listen to this podcast to hear my anxieties and then they might be a little yeah, bit less yeah they might sympathise them might they just sort of show them your, your real side yeah and, yeah I mean I'm, I'm shitting it that I'm going to get in trouble for the mill on the floss so I feel you not really <laughs> um, I'm not doing anything controversial I'll tell, tell you what is strange for years I don't do it anymore but for years I taught John Wilmot's poem The Imperfect Enjoyment which is all about a man having a premature mm. ejaculation whilst he's with a prostitute and it's very graphic and, and it's like it's, it is explicitly misogynistic mm. and I never really worried about that Yeah. But the, but Chris Morris you know having his head on the face of a child as he runs away um, is it because premature ejaculation is not a crime it's not something most people find offensive it's not something like is it basically because premature ejaculation isn't as bad as paedophilia probably is that I yeah. think that's it probably, probably is that. what it is isn't yeah, yeah, it? yeah yeah probably is that yeah. yeah so that's that's all sorted now thank you for helping yeah. me through this um, so I think that's we're coming to the end is there anything else you want to talk about on this episode I don't think so no, no. well that's no. Um, yeah it's been it's been a a wild ride, hasn't it? It has been yeah. a wild ride, and it's been lovely it's being been back legit. in this. It's been a legit, legit wild ride. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, listeners. Um, if you want, if you've been impacted, let us know. If you want to hear the podcast legit, 
talk with Smith yeah. and War, do let us know. Yeah, and what would you um, like? Us, what legit things would you like us to talk about in a legit way? And on that bombshell, and on that bombshell, I yeah. think it's time to sit up. Be quiet.